I want to start this morning by quoting the words from a very famous hymn called Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus, written by Louisa Stead in 1892 or 1882. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise and to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for the grace to trust him more. Louisa and her husband were on a picnic with their four-year-old daughter, Lily, on the Long Island, New York. And as they sat there and ate their food, they heard a scream toward the water. And they looked up and there was a teenage boy drowning in the water. Louisa's husband immediately got up, ran, jumped in the water, and as the struggle ensued, what happens often with a drowning victim, not only did the drowning victim, teenage boy, die, but Louisa and her daughter, four-year-old daughter, Lily, watched in what only could be a horrific event to watch your husband and father drown and die right in front of you. This left them nearly destitute. Small apartment on Long Island. One night they barely had any food left in the house or in the apartment. And Louisa, who had dreamed all her life of growing up and, and being a missionary in Africa, prayed to God. The next morning there was a knock at the door. You got to remember, there's no social media no Facebook to, or Twitter to tweet out, I need food. The next morning there was a knock at the door and as she went to the door, there was nobody standing there. But what was on the porch was food. <laughs> Lots of food. It was that night that Louisa went back to write this hymn that we've sang for over nearly 120 years, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. Now, a few years later, Louisa and her daughter, Lily, moved to South Africa, both of them to be missionaries. She remarried. And I loved how the converts in Zimbabwe and South Africa who came to Christ sang this hymn every year on the day she died for years and years and years. So I asked the question, is there anything that is true of you and I that we need to learn more than to learn how to trust in Jesus. Or put it another way, how sweet it is to learn to trust in Jesus. Is there anything that you and I need more? Surely, it is the most important thing when it comes to daily Christian living. So today, we're starting a seven-week series as we continue through the book of Luke. In chapter seven and eight, over the next seven weeks, we're gonna see Jesus engage people with incredible hardships in their doubt, in deep, dark sin and struggle. And Luke makes it crystal clear for us, starting this morning and in these two chapters, because of who Jesus is, you and I can trust him. So we're going to have seven weeks of biblical instruction. Think about how beautiful this is to teach us and equip us 
all so that we might individually and corporately as a church learn what it means to trust in Jesus. Out of the three or four things that we could be known for as a church, would it not be great that one of them be, these are a group of people who know it is sweet to trust in Jesus. So that the purpose is that you and I might bear spiritual fruit. Luke 8, 15 puts it this way, just the next chapter over. It tells us, they are those who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. You know what that means? To hear the word and hold it fast with a honest and good heart, it means they are trusting in the words of Jesus and trusting in the words of Jesus are just the same as trusting in Jesus himself. And in doing so, Luke eight fifteen tells us they bear fruit with patience. So now we back up a minute and we say, what does it mean to bear fruit? Because we just don't want to use these little Christian terms without defining them and putting some flesh on them. And so to when you speak of spiritual fruit, you go to the classic text of Galatians 5, where Paul lays that out. And this morning, I want to quote from the version of the Bible, the message, as we talk about spiritual fruit. Here's how Paul puts it. He says, this is what spiritual fruit means. But what happens when we live God's way? That's another way to say what happens when we trust in Jesus? He brings gifts into our lives much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things in people. We find ourselves not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. So that's what it looks like to trust in Jesus, to bear fruit from that trust and walking with him day in and day out. But what happens to the person? Now, my next question, what happens to the person who doesn't trust in Jesus? Nothing? No. They bear fruit too. But the kind of fruit that they bear is a bitter, harsh, rancid, hard, rigid fruit. These people have an unreasonable way about them. It could be us. It could be anyone who doesn't trust in Jesus. Paul gives these as flesh, what it means to walk in the flesh just before he gives the fruit of the Spirit. So these are the fruits of the flesh. Again, I quote from the message. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Own way is opposite of Jesus' way. Trusting in yourself, trusting in Jesus. Paul says this is what it looks like. Loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided home and duplistic lives, 
small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival to criticize. That phrase right there, <laughs> that phrase right there just characterizes our world today. Uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions. And so, I'm assuming that you and I want to bear good fruit. And this morning we start in Luke 7 with two stories that teach us how to trust Jesus and how sweet it is to do so. Read with me Luke chapter 7 verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he, Jesus, entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Synonym for the word faith in the New Testament is trust. I have found, in Israel have I found such trust. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterwards, story two, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole Judea and all the surrounding countryside. As we look at these two stories this morning, I want to take a minute to do a compare and contrast to help us wrap our minds and hearts around what's happening here. In the first story, one through 10, Jesus is in Capernaum. That's his hometown. In the second story, he's in the village of Nain, which is about one day's walk, 20 miles south of Capernaum. In the first story, he's dealing with a Gentile centurion and his Gentile servant. In the second one, he's dealing with a Jewish widow's only son. The first one, the centurion's servant, is deathly ill. We'll see that's no problem for Jesus. And in the second one, 
The son is dead, but that's no problem either. Jesus responds to a cry for help in the first story. In the second one, Jesus acts via his compassion. The first one, Jesus never saw the centurion or servant. And in the second woman, he certainly saw the woman and her son. In the first story, the centurion had complete confidence in Jesus. And in the second one, the widow only had grief and hopelessness. She didn't know who he was. In the first story, Jesus healed the servant without a word. In the second story, Jesus raised the son from the dead with his words. And lastly, Jesus feels deep emotion in the first story. The text tells us that he marveled, and we're going to unpack that. And it's beautiful. And in the second one, it says Jesus felt deep emotion. He felt compassion. And so as we unpack these two stories, what happens is the first story, earthly authority meets heavenly authority. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Earthly authority meets heavenly authority. Now, if you're like me, a life of trust we know has to be rooted in something, grounded in something. Because when I struggle the most is when I begin to doubt God's ability to act or I some way get a suspicion that he really doesn't care. And I, I need you to know this. After 15 years as a pastor, I have preached sermons where I have been brokenhearted in this pulpit because of one or both of those taking place in my own heart. I am as human as you. And I've often thought in those very dark, brokenhearted times, it would be so nice if Jesus would knock on my door at 2108 Olmstead Court and say, Jeff, let's sit down and chat a minute. How you doing? I just want to let you know, man, I'm good. I know what you're going through. I love you and I care for you. Like, I, you ever thought that? And Miko, <laughs> I just, I thought you were, but you know. He's never done that. But I tell you what he has done in those dark moments. He has used his word to tell me just that. And that's what he does here this morning. His word keeps trust alive. Daryl Bach, the world famous professor from Dallas Seminary and world number one expert on the book of Luke said this about chapters seven and eight, that Jesus was the first man to use PowerPoint. His power is pointing to who he was and what he's like. And that's what we see this morning. In our first story, our main character is a centurion who is not only a Gentile, but he's a Roman officer. The very people that every Jew wanted to be run out of their country that had been taken over by the Romans. Now we know a centurion is a man in charge of a century of men or a hundred men. And this centurion couldn't get married because what Rome did, Caesar sent the centurions out to all parts of the Roman Empire up to 20 years at a time. So what would happen is their servants or their employees at the time that helped run their household because they were paid well in the day, these folks really became like family. The centurion while stationed in Israel 
the text tells us, had fallen in love with the Jewish people, its culture. And obviously he had great respect for their religion. Some say he was a proselyte, meaning he had been converted, converted to Judaism. We don't know that with certainty, but we do know he respected and loved them enough that he either was a, con, uh, uh, a construction guy and actually built it, but most people say he gave money to build their synagogue. So he wrote a check. He did a capital campaign or helped them with their capital campaign. So that's the main character. Our problem here is that the centurion had a servant who was deathly sick. His life is hanging by thread. And this servant is loved and respected, we're told, by the centurion. The term highly valued him, that the centurion highly valued this servant is translated was dear to him or deeply esteemed by him. Now, the centurion had heard about this prophet Jesus, this, this Jewish prophet who could heal people. That, that noise was spreading throughout the countryside. And so here's what he does. He asked the Jewish leaders of the local synagogue, who he knew well, who he was in relationship with. He said, yo, would you go tell your homeboy, right? That's your guy, Jew to Jew. Would you ask him to come here? and heal my servant. The leaders, the text tells us, came to Jesus, says they pleaded with Jesus. They begged Jesus to come, and their reasoning was, their apologetic for their asking Jesus to come. Apologetic means defending this question. Why will you spend the time to come and heal a Gentile servant? A Gentile servant. Yeah, there you go. Got it. You get it. And they said this, the Gentile, this Gentile is worthy because he loves us. He loves the Jews. He loves our nation. And look, he gave money to build our synagogue. Let me just stop right here and put a parenthesis. This isn't the main point of the text. But Luke, being a historian and being a detailed guy, he inserts this here because first century Jews and Gentiles reading this for the first time, their jaws would have dropped. They would have been in shock after a hundred years of strife between the two races, Gentiles and Jews. Luke is telling us that when Jesus arrives on the scene, the differences between races start to melt away. This is gospel stuff here, and Luke is just beginning to allude to it. So Jesus heads off, he says, with them to the centurion's house. Verse 6, he seems as if the centurion began to think about his request. And so he thought, look, I don't need to bother him. And so he sent some friends as Jesus got close. And he said, basically, to Jesus, through his friends, I'm not worthy for you to come to my home and be under my roof. Worthy here says, he's saying, I'm not adequate or important enough for this honor. I want you to notice with me the contrast, if you would, between the confidence in the centurion's worthiness that the Jewish leaders had and the centurion's self-evaluation of himself. 
<laughs> the Jewish leader said, this man is worthy. And the centurion himself said, I am not worthy. This centurion did not feel worthy of God's kindness, but he never doubted the master's authority to solve this problem. If you and I want to know what truth is, there's no truer statement in Scripture. You and I are not deserving of God's kindness in no way, form, or fashion. Our resume isn't thick enough. Our morality isn't good enough. We're not deserving of anything of God's kindness. However, that doesn't take away the capability of the Lord Jesus to do what he can do. And that's where you and I sit. And this centurion sat there. His, he hoped the Lord would heal his servant. But he did not ask with a sense of entitlement as if I deserve. And he says, all you have to do, Jesus, is speak a word. And I know he can be healed because you, Jesus, are a man under authority, under the authority of God. And I, too, am a man under authority, under the authority of Caesar. And I know that when I go and tell my men to do something, it's done. And I know when you go and speak, it's done as well. And then verse 9 jumps on us. These nine words, read them with me. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. These nine words, if I can just be honest with you, when I read them this week, and I've probably read honestly 10 times or more the book of Luke over my Christian life. When I read these words, my breath I sort of took my breath away and I sort of laughed out loud. I was like, <laughs> and I sort of teared up and I said, oh my goodness. I was like, Jenna, Jenna. She's thinking, she's probably thinking, what have you lost now, right? But I said, you ain't going to believe what I get to say Sunday. I thought, man, these nine words sent electricity up and down my spine as they should yours. For God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, to say he was amazed, that he was wild, that he, was, he had marveled, that he felt this deep emotion. I, I thought it, it's not easy to make Jesus marvel. It's not easy to make him feel amazed. Think of all that he has seen. Folks, he's seen it all. He saw his father said, let there be light, and there was light. Think of all that he knows. Everything. Like, uh, can I tell you how the brain works? Well, I made the brain. I, I mean, it's not, and he says there's something that this centurion did that made him marvel to be amazed, to feel deeply about something. And here's what he said it was, and this ought to encourage the socks of, off of us. It is when we trust him. <laughs> when his people trust him. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. 
He tells us without faith, without trust, it is impossible to please God. Again, the message brings it down to earth for us. Hebrews 11, it's impossible to please God apart from faith. And why? Because anyone who wants to approach God must believe both that he exists and that he cares enough to respond to those who seek him. That is what makes the Lord Jesus marvel crying out to God and trusting that he exists and he's capable to work to either change your circumstances or to change you in the midst of your circumstances is what he marvels at, that what he relishes, what he loves, what he rejoices over. And guess what, folks? He's never once in scripture is he bothered by it. <laughs> never once does he say he gets tired of it. Stop, I'm trying to rest. Jesus is not looking for strength. He is looking for trust. And prayer, folks, can I just, it was a mind-boggling thing. I thought, duh, prayer, we know, is the greatest, maybe the, the epic evidence of trust. To speak words to an unseen God as if he is there. And he is. And God marvels at that. Jesus said, I've been up and down Israel and I've not seen this kind of trust. Luke doesn't record that Jesus spoke a word. One, one writer said that Jesus thought a thought. He thought a thought and when they got home, the servant was well. That's what Jesus is like. Secondly, the way of life meets the way of death in our second story. In this story, Jesus is full of compassion and mercy. And you and I are drawn to him when we realize that about him. And here Jesus is stepping to a situation of overwhelming grief and heartbreaking loss. And here again, we'll see not just what he does, but we get to see what he's like. We know that what Jesus asks of us is enormous, don't we? We know he says, come to me, or put it another way, I'm going to bring you to me, and then I'm going I'm to save you, and then I'm going to say, surrender to me, submit to me, deny yourself, and turn away from idolatries. Quit finding life or trying to find life and refuge in idolatries. Find it in me. And Jesus, because knowing this is a lot to ask, and it is scary, and it is hard. If you're like me, I want to make sure it's a good idea to lay my life on the line, to lay my life on the table and say, Lord, I'm all yours. This story tells us it's a really good idea to do that, that you can trust him. So here's what it goes. Jesus goes to the small village of Nain. It's about 200 people then, and it's re-spelled now instead of N-A-I-N, N-A-I-N as it was then. Today it's spelled N-E-I-N and it still has 200 people. <laughs> so it, a lot hasn't changed. You can look at it on Google Earth. I did. Tried to see if there's any turkeys in the pasture outside the <laughs> field. Notice the text tells us there was a crowd with him. And Luke tells us on this day it was large. First reading the text, I'm thinking if 
If I'm making that 20-mile hike, I want some rest from folks, right? I want to say, "Lo, y'all got things to do at home or what? You know, leave me alone. But Jesus, no, 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 no. He was okay with the large crowd here. And here's why. He knew what was going to happen. There was a divine appointment waiting in Nain, and he wanted all to see. And Luke 12 tells us, verse 12 tells us, a man had died. Jesus has walked up on a funeral procession. And now we know why he came to Nain and why the crowd was with him. The text tells us this man was laid out on a bear, which is nothing more really than a flat board. And there were men carrying this dead man on their shoulders as pallbearers, walking out the city gate, down the street, body wrapped in a sheet. And it tells us that the man who died was the only son of a mother. The very worst. <laughs> the very worst kind of grief to lose your child. I can't imagine. And especially a son in this context because he was the future family lineage in that culture. Old Testament prophets often use this as a symbol of the greatest grief imaginable. The prophet Jeremiah said, cry and mourn as for an only son. Ultimate grief here, the only child, a son. And she had already, the text tells us, lost her husband. So now she's a widow and she's childless, which puts her in danger of survival. In that culture, grief, alone, fear, as she walks along in an emotional stupor, not knowing where she is or who she is, or what's going to happen next. She has no idea <laughs> that literally death is about to meet life. Look, when I read verses 13, I was struck by the first few words in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, when his eyes made contact with her, he saw more than just the physical. He saw her situation. He saw her grief. He saw all that was in her heart. <laughs> the text says he had compassion for her. All his attention was on her. This word compassion, yes, it means to feel something. But it speaks of one's feeling something in one's gut. It describes an emotion that has a physical effect on the one feeling it. You felt those strong emotions before? When you feel compassion, you tear up, your stomach flips, your heart's race, your neck gets red, there's a tension in your gut, there's a, that's it. He saw her and he felt compassion for this widow lady who had lost her own son. And then verses 14 through 17, Jesus is completely though, undaunted in the face of death, totally in charge in the face of death. The biggest enemy this world has to offer in Jesus right here, eyeball to eyeball, and did not blink. 
verse 14. The text tells us he puts his hand on the body, which broke all Jewish ritual, folks. Look that one up for another sermon. And the pallbearers stop. They bring the boy down from their shoulders and hold him down. And Jesus halts the progression to the grave. And even before he touched the body, he told the woman, the mother, do not weep. How insensitive that would be unless you could do something about the situation. Life is literally staring death in the face and Jesus now speaks to a dead man. Young man, arise. You could see this dead man's face and hands, the only part not wrapped in feet. The blue, gray stench and picture of death. And then there's blood that returns. Color returns. And this man sits up. And the text tells us he begins to speak. I want to know. Maybe I'm making this list. This list of the top 10 or 20 questions I'm going to ask when I get to heaven. One of them is going to be, yo, what did he say? Mama. (laughs) A funeral has turned into a worship service. There are three things this morning I think we need to learn and apply from this text from these two stories. The first one is Jesus has authority over death. And over death, guess what? Everything else. Both this servant and this man will eventually die one day. They did die. They eventually would not be healed nor raised from the dead. But Luke wants us to see clearly Jesus has power over death. We know that in the scriptures, three times Jesus is recorded as raising someone from the dead. And what else we know is that one day he will raise hundreds of millions from the dead. And who will that be? To new life, to eternity with him. Those who've lived well, those who are moral, those who are rich, those who had status. No, the scripture says those who have trusted him. Those who have placed their trust in the shed blood of Christ. Because here's the deal. God is God enough to be free to pour his mercy on the least likely of candidates. And most of us fit that bill. He brought the dead back to life in scripture so everyone would know something about what he is like. And we know all of us individually are one day going to face death. And it will be a sad and sorrowful time in many ways. Some of us need to think about our own death even more. It's a great spiritual reality check. 
Most of us know, though, by our own experiences, we've experienced death. Death of grandparents, parents, spouses, some of us children. Jesus wants us to know that he has complete control and power over death. If you can trust Jesus in death, you can trust him with anything. Secondly, Jesus cares and is so full of compassion. So confident to know that Jesus feels and meets us in our grief. That he doesn't stand off from us and go, would you stop that? Like, what is wrong with you? No. He meets us. He says, I've come to put death to death. Whether we cry out for him as the centurion did or whether we're walking around in an emotional stupor, most of us have experienced this kindness and compassion of God if we know Jesus and have walked with him any length of time. He says, this is who I am. And this is how I treat my people. You can trust me. I want to say this to some of us too. I know this from being a pastor 15 years and living in my own crazy mind and heart. And that is this. There's this, there's this underlying lie that eats at us. Sometimes it's overt, but most of the time it runs underground, deep, but real and true. And that is this. No one cares for me. No one cares about what I think and what I feel. Luke tells us, Jesus says, you're wrong. Lastly, and this is my favorite one. Jesus marvels at us when we trust him. Hmm. Trust looks like, I need you, Lord. Help me, work in me, use me, heal me. Speak your word to me in new and fresh ways. The psalmist, Psalm 40, puts it like this. He describes trust. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps secure. Jesus marvels at when you and I trust him. And we wait patiently for the Lord and we cry out to the Lord. And we say, I have nowhere else to go but you. And he says, I love, I love that. I marvel at that. I, I relish that. Rarely. I've been up and down Murfreesboro. And rarely have I seen faith and trust like that. It's so sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word. I'm so glad I learned to trust thee, precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that thou art with me and will be with me to the end. Take a minute to ask the question this morning, so what? What?